0: This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Alain Bouchard, of Cardiology Specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension.
1: Well, welcome to our podcast on um, CTEF. And uh, you would say, what in the world is CTEF? It's called also chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. It's a part of the group four in, um, in patients with pulmonary hypertension. And it actually happens to be a curable cause of pulmonary hypertension. So very excited about this. Uh, excited also to have uh, on our uh, speaker uh, row, Dr. David McGiffin, who's a world expert in, um, in uh, CTEF who's done multiple surgeries in patients uh, with this uh, disease. We have also um, Dr. Jason Guichard, who's a world specialist in pulmonary hypertension. So Jason, you know, welcome, thanks for being here. Um, so let's talk about numbers a little bit. I mean, if we talk about pulmonary emboli or clots in the lungs, uh, we talked about that in one of our previous podcasts, uh, which was the you know pulmonary emboli or the killer clot. We're talking about uh, in the United States between 500 to 600,000 patients afflicted by uh, pulmonary emboli. That's one, about one in 1,000. Of these, I mean, we know it's a killer clot, it's a deadly disease. Sometimes it's missed or un- underdiagnosed. Maybe 60 to 100,000 patients will die from pulmonary emboli. So it's a very serious condition. Of these patients with pulmonary emboli, approximately 1% to 2% will develop. This chronic condition, you know, called a CTEF, we're not talking about a very large percentage of patients, but it's such a, a huge and very prevalent disease that overall it's probably around 5,000 patients that can be afflicted with CTEF. Uh, and if we look at the operations that are being performed yearly, only maybe four, maybe four, 450. Uh, surgeries for CTEF are being performed It's so a very, very small number, which means a lot of uh, patients are being missed or maybe undiagnosed. And uh, this is why we wanted to do a podcast on this, because uh, it's a curable disease, and uh, it's difficult to uh, diagnose. So here we are. Uh, and maybe I could start with you, Jason. If we talk about pulmonary embolism, um, someone who has a pulmonary embolus or a clot going into the lungs, what is the normal process of the body resolving or dissolving uh, this clot? And, and how long does it take to resolve it? So, yes, happy to be
2: here. That's a, a great question. So everyone started with pulmonary embolisms, um, pulmonary thromboembolisms, or so blood clots, usually traveling from the legs or other veins, and then um, end up traveling through the heart into the lungs. Uh, um, this can cause you know, lots of um, issues um, all the way kind of from mild shortness of breath to death. Um, there's a definitely a, a gradient there. Um, but when once the uh, blood clots get into the lungs, you know, obviously uh, for most patients, you know, there needs to be treatment. Now, the uh, acute treatment has been um, addressed uh, elsewhere um, in our podcasts, you know, as these um, and one of the cornerstone treatments is a blood thinner. So as you might imagine, a blood clot is usually battled by blood thinner. Um, and as the blood thinners, you know, get on these clots and into the um, the pulmonary arteries, um, the uh, clot will begin to dissolve. Um, and the timing of that is, you know, different and dependent largely on the clot burden, you know, how well some of these, you know, clot busters or blood thinners can get into the clot. Um, but I can I've seen um, clots, you know, dissolve within um, the matter of say, um, you know, an hour or two. Um, all the way to, you know, several hours or even days. Um, You know, you can get chronic clots, which are a little bit harder to, you know, dissolve versus, you know, kind of acute clots. So there's a a lot of variability when it comes to the resolution of thromboembolism that's in the lungs. CTEP, which is what we're talking about today, so chronothermboembolism, pulmonary hypertension, is still a relatively rare outcome. I think it's important, um, you know, to kind of bring that up. You know, depending on the study um, and registry that's been looked at, it can be anywhere, Developing in about 0.5% to up to 3% of acute pulmonary embolism um, survivors. Um, And, uh, you know, so it's a a relatively rare outcome, um, but of course, something that never really wants, we want to miss because it is, you know, highly treatable. Now, with these uh, patients that develop this pulmonary embolism and the chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, you know, you have a kind of a chronic fibrotic um, you know, flow limiting organized thrombus within the vascular beds. So these are, um, kind of, um, areas that, um, were, um, not dissolved by, you know, either clot busters or by, um, blood thinners and form this kind of fibrosis kind of very hard flow limiting, um, um, um kind of mass through the pulmonary arteries, um, that are, you know, basically undetoured by blood thinners. Um, and then at that point, additional therapies need to be, um, Either considered or uh, performed.
1: So um, approximately 96 to 97 patient uh, percent of the patients will resolve their clot completely. But you have some patients that take a little bit longer. If you do, for example, VQ scans and, and you follow the resolution uh, of the filling defect or or you know what the clot caused. Some patients will take up to six months before resolving uh, their VQ scan or to become normal. Yes, that can be true. Yeah, so this can take,
2: um, you know, and some patients can take, you know, weeks to months to resolve if it ever does resolve. Um, and then some patients can be, you know, literally in the matter of, you know, hours to minutes, you know, depending on, you know, if they received thrombolytic agents or not. Um, I've seen rapid turnaround and resolution of even large clots um, within and around the heart, you know, even within, um, you know, several minutes to hours. So I think a lot of it just depends on, you know, kind of the, the composition of the clot, um, the age of the clot, where the clot is. Um, but uh, yes, it can be anywhere from, you know, hours to, you know, several months, um, you know, for each individual patient.
0: So, so, Elaine, let me just yes. make a, a point here um, that not everybody that doesn't resolve a pulmonary embolus ends up with CTEF, but many patients who have a, an embolus, pulmonary embolus, still have symptoms, as you mentioned, that may go on for many, many months, and there will be patients with demonstrable um, areas of VQ mismatching, so there's still residual abnormalities in their VQ scan, but they don't have CTEF. Uh, and so, every anybody that continues to be symptomatic after pulmonary pulmonary embolus has to be, should be investigated, but not all of them are going to have CTEF. And as you said, about ninety six percent of patients will resolve their uh, pulmonary embolus, um, and about four are left four percent are left with residual abnormalities some of whom are going to have ctef and by and large we sort of work on the general premise that about uh four per million of population uh uh, this is our population um, uh, information four per million are going to end up with
1: ctef so what happens what happens in patients that do develop ctef um david uh, you know, obviously, they don't quite resolve their their clot or, or the th- the thrombus, you know, in the pulmonary artery, but something else happens uh, that really kind of triggers this this re- vascular reaction, this thickening of the uh, of the blood vessel and the pulmonary arteries.
0: So, so it's sort of uh, we we have this sort of um, handy way of thinking about it that that. But- the clot doesn't dissolve it lodges in a bifurcation point uh, propagates down the segmental subsegmental vessels and then turns into scar due to a cicatrization process so you get um, fibrous tails and blind pouches and webs and bands and so on and then that CTF it's probably not quite as simple as that uh, and that as you just mentioned you probably need some sort of second hit, but nobody knows what that is, uh, to start off the process of cicatrization and scarring.
1: So some inflammation involved or or an immune response, um, you know, what makes, I mean, basically you have a clot that is, you know, it can be in in the very large segment of the pulmonary artery or or maybe in some of the segments, but then you get some uh, really thickening of the walls of the pulmonary arteries, you know, way down distal, uh, near the alveoli. Yes, that Yes,
0: we know that that second hit is not known. Yeah.
1: Well, it's obviously um, a very difficult uh, presentation can be so variable. As a matter of fact, uh, if you see a patient with uh, CTEF, about a quarter or 25% of them have never had a history of a blood clot at all. So, what is yes. this? What should cue us in, you know, to tell us? Well, maybe this patient could have, you know, CTEF. If we're in the practice, for example, seeing somebody that's short, that's short of breath. Uh, what, you know, what is the frequent presentation of these patients?
0: So, um, so let me just backtrack a little bit about who should be um, who should be investigated after pulmonary embolus. So you can't investigate everybody. You'd be doing so many VQ scans and CT scans and so on. uh, That would be unmanageable. But I think there is a very, very good screening test for patients that have had a pulmonary embolus um, and separates out those who don't need further investigation and those that do. And the screening test is easy. You get the patient in the office about three months after the pulmonary embolus, and you say to them, Are you back to normal? Can you do everything that you did prior to the pulmonary embolus? If the answer is yes, those patients don't need screening. If they say no, those patients need screening for sequelae of a pulmonary embolus. Now, the problem with chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, firstly, let me give you the definition of. CTF. this is the, the, the International um, uh, Nice Symposium definition, because it, it's recently been revised, and that is a mean PA pressure of greater than or equal to 20 millimetres of mercury. It used to be 25, it's now ratcheted down to 20, with a wedge pressure of less than or equal to 15, with a PVR, pulmonary acid resistance, of greater than or equal to three wood units. So that's the, that's the now accepted definition. Very, so the problem with the diagnosis is it's very, very insidious, uh, and it it by and large it takes about four visits to a general practitioner and four visits to a specialist uh, to make the diagnosis, because it's it's attributed to something else some could be heart failure, some chronic lung disease, all uh, there's many different. Diagnoses that it could be misinterpreted as. So, um, so uh, frequently these patients uh, turn up uh, very late, uh, already with uh, severe right heart failure.
1: It's very difficult, David, because um, only seventy-five percent of these patients will have a confirmed PTE prior to presentation. Uh, barely half of them will have a history of DVT. And uh, maybe just maybe a third of them uh, will come to you for a repeated PTE. You know, that means, you know, they've had, you know, more than once. So, but I think your point is is very well taken. If you do have a history of a blood clot somewhere, whether it's a DVT or whether it's a PTE or pulmonary embolus, you know, this this uh, post-PTE syndrome or this, you know, post... um, embolic syndrome of still not being back to your normal self. You know, still being short of breath is very, very important. It should cue us in to do a little further investigation. And probably, uh, you know, the best and the cheapest may be that, that VQ scan, you know, which we could do as an outpatient. Yes, but
0: if you're completely back to normal, right, you don't Absolutely. need it.
1: Yeah, well, what are the risk factors to develop uh, CTEF, Jason? Um, I mean, are, are some you know patients um, uh, more predisposed to develop uh, chronic thromboembolic syndrome?
2: Yes, so there are um, risk factors, just like with a, a lot of things, um, for developing um, chronic thrombo pulmonary hypertension. You know, we talk about you know often that kind of one hit with the um, uh, pulmonary embolism. Um, but there can be additional things that can weigh against your favor. Um, if you have, um, that could, uh, um, predispose you to the development. So, um, part of that with that acute setting, you know, if you have recurrent, um, pulmonary embolic events, you know, that can, um, increase the, um, likelihood of very large perfusion defect. So kind of the, um, burden, if you will, can sometimes, um, uh, make you at higher risk for developing, um, A higher pulmonary artery pressure at the time of the initial pulmonary artery um, of the PE diagnosis. So if you already have kind of existing chronic pulmonary hypertension, you know, this would be potentially kind of the second hit um, that you have that would then um, kind of create that as well. Um, An unprovoked pulmonary embolism. um, So having some underlying issue that we didn't know about. um, So the unprovoked um, patients seem to develop the CTEP at a higher percentage. So some blood factors or hemostatic risk factors, if you have um, kind of blood coagulation disorders um, that predisposed you to developing thrombus, um, those are, um, you know, something that kind of, again, um, increases your chances for developing CTAP. Um, Other types of um, kind of uh, antibody issues like with lupus or antiphospholipid syndrome, um, it seems that these patients with kind of these underlying issues um, can develop um, CTEP a higher percentage than, um, than the regular population and some associated medical conditions that can also do that as well. So prior splenectomy um, um, can do that as well. Chronic inflammatory disorders like your rheumatoid arthritis, um, even, you know, gout, uh, some of the kind of chronic inflammatory issues, you know, probably all inhibiting some of the natural factors that break down clots um, predisposed to CTEP. Um, There's also some evidence that, you know, hypothyroidism and underlying malignancy can as well. So there are some underlying kind of patient factors that can predispose or, um, you know, increase the likelihood of developing um, uh, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. Um, So those are, you know, all things that your physician will kind of keep in mind um, when when
1: evaluating you uh, in the office. Very good. So unprovoked pulmonary embolus. Uh, very important factor, as well as the, if the embolus is large enough to cause significant problem with the right ventricle, a large burden, um, as well as certain patients like you mentioned you know is there something with hypothyroidism david um, that you know if you have a low thyroid, why should that make you more prone to develop um, you know, CTF I actually never heard of that
0: before
1: never so you, never you, understood you, that one you know I guess. Yeah. The,
0: if you're hypothyroid- That went up on me there, Jason. Um, I didn't, I've never heard that one before. But many of the things that you've described are risk factors for pulmonary emboli. Um, but what makes it progress to chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension? Well, there, there, that's what we don't understand. Uh, and there are no doubt, or well, there are likely uh, genetic abnormalities with fibrinolysis. Uh, um, so, so you make abnormal clot and the the mechanism the mechanisms abnormal. So it's probably something along those
1: lines. So, David, let's say, you know, this patient goes untreated, you develop, you know, CTEF. What's the natural history? I mean, it's a pretty bad disease, isn't it? Yes, it is.
0: Uh, so uh, the natural history is poor. Um, and there's information from back in the 1980s, which is still sort of relevant. Uh, you know, one of the... The landscape of treatment for CTEF has changed with BPA, balloon pulmonary angioplasty, medical therapy, and and uh, pulmonary endarterectomy. Um, so, the, the, so what was described back in the 1980s is probably still relevant today. So, your survival is dependent on your mean PA pressure. So, let's say your mean PA pressure is around about 50 millimeters of mercury so by 2 years after that the diagnosis you've got about a 20% chance of being alive so so it's a very mortal condition
1: yeah. i mean i guess if your normal mean pa pressure probably around 12 to 15 uh, so if your pressure is less than 20 uh, you know you don't be, your prognosis is very good but you know as you mentioned the higher the mean PA pressure, 40 and 50, only 5 to 10%, you know, will survive this. So very, very um, deadly condition if left untreated. Uh, so, Jason, the, what, what is the workup, the classic or typical workup of a patient that you suspect CTEF?
2: Yes. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, these patient symptoms, as we've talked about a lot in these podcasts, you know, shortness of breath, um, exertion, just kind of overall fatigue, you know, not feeling well, you know, these unfortunately, um, symptoms can, you know, happen with a lot of disease processes. So you, um, by and large need additional information. And we largely have that, We you know, when we see patients, you know, because these patients have been very miserable, people will order lots of different testing and different tests. And then, um, things will usually kind of, um, become abnormal and then they'll eventually get to a specialist. So usually kind of the first things with kind of the signs and symptoms of um, pulmonary hypertension is usually where it starts with, right? That's how these patients initially get funneled, um, you know, to to expert centers. Um, You know, you do a, um, you know, chest X-ray, pulmonary uh, pulmonary function tests, um, EKG, um, um, echocardiogram, you know, kind of all the standard initial workup for someone with shortness of breath, looking at both the heart and the lungs. Generally speaking, what will happen is that the echocardiogram, so the ultrasound of the heart, will show pulmonary hypertension. So it's usually kind of the first kind of gateway, usually the first thing that um, is noticed, um, you know, with a patient that's having these symptoms. So that will usually um, land someone into a pulmonary hypertension clinic or specialist, and then that will start the cascade of events to evaluate that. And usually kind of the big gatekeeper for CTEP is um, is. Dr. McGeevan talked about already, is the ventilation perfusion lung scan or the VQ scan. Um, So this actually looks at the um, um, perfusion of the lungs as well as the ventilation of the lungs, as the the name suggests. And if there are um, segmental or larger um, unmatched perfusion defects, meaning um, you don't have, um, you know, there's an issue with the flow and ventilation um, and it's abnormal, then that will clue you in that there could potentially be um, CTAP, Chronic thrombotic pulmonary hypertension is the is the cause of the patient's pulmonary hypertension. Now, real quick, if it's normal, you know the VQ scan is very sensitive, so this is an excellent test, um, and we hold it in high regard. If you have a normal scan, then then CTEP. So chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension is excluded. Now we'll get to this in a you know later in the podcast, post PE syndrome, um, or um, what's often called CTEP or chronic thromboembolic disease is different. So you can actually have a normal uh, um, VQ scan um, and then maybe have one of those other syndromes, but let's just talk about the pulmonary tension specifically. So if that's abnormal, um, then uh, that would usually trigger the right heart cath. Um, And as Dr. McGiffin suggested, you know, mean pulmonary pressure greater than 20, a wedge less than 15, and the presence of um, an abnormal VQ VQ scan will then kind of lead you in that um, diagnosis. Um, now, at that point, you need to determine if someone is a surgical candidate. Um, so there are a couple different ways of doing that. Um, one would be either catheter-based pulmonary angiography or CT-based pulmonary angiography. Um, there are also some people, you know, doing MRI as well. But for those two things, you basically look at the anatomy um, of the pulmonary arteries. Um, and, you know, often with a, a surgical or interventional specialist to, you know, kind of get a group multidisciplinary decision about how to proceed
1: forward. You know, everybody consider the CT or CTA of the lungs almost a gold standard for, um, you know, detecting an acute pulmonary embolus. But, you know, for CTEF, I guess we're relying primarily on whether the patient has an abnormal VQ scan or abnormal ventilation to perfusion, you know, defect. And it could be quite difficult, I guess, with the CT uh, to to detect um, a condition like CTEF, isn't it?
0: Uh, no. no um, there's a, there's a, a form of CT scan called dual energy CT, which is sort of relatively new, uh, that gives you much more precise imaging of the pulmonary vasculature, and you can see the perfusion much better as well. So at the Alfred, we use dual energy CT scanning. Um, for surgical decision-making, we still rely on pulmonary and Pulmonary angiography. Um, many centers have stopped doing it. Uh, you need some sort of angiogram. Uh, you know, it could be an MR angiogram, a CT angiogram, uh, and they're happy to make the surgical decision making on that basis, but we still do a catheter-based pulmonary angiogram. And this and how it's done is actually very important um, because you've got to let the camera run on. For uh, at least about seven seconds, so you can look at the perfusion of the lung to give you clues about where the holes are in the perfusion, and uh, and and different views, so you make sure you um, don't have uh, overlap of different vessels. Then you can get very exquisite pictures of the thromboembolic disease.
1: So, is this what's called a spect CT VQ scan, or a combination of um, a tomographic? Uh, picture of a VQ, the dual energy CT
0: scan with two energy two two uh, energy sources. Uh, I, I'm not you know aware of all the the physics of it, but they're able to resolve much better um, fine detail of the pulmonary vasculature with these with two uh, two X ray beams.
1: So basically, for the workup, I mean, you need something to detect the pulmonary the pulmonary hypertension, which is the echo, and then the right heart cardiac catheterization then you need to be able to look at the vasculature and and of course there you have the uh, the vq follow the pulmonary angiogram whether you do it invasively or or non-invasively i don't think we have a whole lot of experience with uh, magnetic resonance imaging but you know several, certain centers uh, do that you know on a regular basis the same i guess with the uh, ct angiogram so so david uh, let me ask you in your, what is your treatment algorithm? I mean, we know that these patients, I mean, the the, the, the pathophysiology and the cause of their problems, the blood clots, everybody's going to be on the blood thinner. But obviously, you're a surgeon, you're trying to decide, and this is a curable disease, you can cure them in the operating room. Uh, so what goes on, you know, with the process of deciding, are they operable, or are they not operable?
0: So there's a, another important aspect we haven't touched on the yet that we need to mention and that is microvascular disease is or can be an important component of the disease so there's the large vessel obstruction from the fibrous cicatrization uh, but there's also microvascular disease particularly if the disease has been going on for a prolonged period of time that is unobstructed areas of the lung are subject to these higher pressures and then excessive muscularization of the very very small um, pre-capillary arterioles. So in other words, then there's two causes of the pulmonary hypertension, the macrovascular macrovascular obstruction and the microvascular disease. And that's an important part of the decision-making because if the pulmonary vascular resistance is high or the pulmonary artery pressure is high because of a lot of microvascular disease with not a lot of of removable surgical disease, then that's going to make the risk of the operation very much higher and perhaps prohibitively high. Now, I'm not suggesting that the patient can't benefit from an operation, but the end result in terms of reduction of pulmonary artery pressure won't be anywhere near as good as the converse, that is, lots lots of macrovascular disease and very little microvascular disease. Unfortunately, we're really not able to have any reliable way of sorting out how much is microvascular disease and how much is the macrovascular disease responsible for for the pulmonary hypertension. You can get clues about it. So, somebody with a with just let's say systemic PA pressures and very little, very little large vessel obstruction is going to have lots and lots of microvascular disease. And of course, the converse is true. So the decision-making about who, well, the first thing is the the most effective way of dealing with chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension is an operation called pulmonary endarterectomy. That is what the goal is. Is the patient operable? Is the patient inoperable? Uh, And that decision needs to be made by an experienced multidisciplinary team. So one one end of the spectrum, it's real easy. Lots of disease, pulmonary hypertension, minimal microvascular disease, no problem, easy. At the other end, uh, the major component being microvascular disease with very little macrovascular disease, that patient is not suitable for a pulmonary endarterectomy. It's all the ones in the middle, which can often be uh, somewhat problematic, and that's why it needs an experienced set of eyes to look at all the information, because it's not just the pulmonary angiogram. It's the right heart catheterisation, the echocardiogram, the, the, uh, the VQ scan, the, all of that comes into this decision-making. So, so you also have to bring into the equation uh, all those things that we use when we're assessing patients for cardiac surgery. Do they have sufficient uh, phys- uh, physical reserves to get through the operation and the postoperative period? Is the comorbidity excessive? Because many of these patients have comorbidity. Remember, pulmonary embolism, embolism is a disease of comorbidity, uh, and so we've got to factor the amount of co- the amount of uh, comorbidity into this decision-making equation as well. Patient, also,
1: patient with cancer, patient
0: with right, diabetes, right,
1: with exactly.
0: And, but 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 more important and germane to uh, CTF is. What if somebody's been missed for a very, very long period of time and by, they turn, by the time they turn up, they've already got a renal failure and a hepatic failure? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not, that's not uh, common, but it's not uncommon either. So all of those things need to go into the equation. Um, and when you're looking at it from a surgical perspective, you've got to be thinking, and just this is a general heuristic now, you've got to be thinking surgically can I, how much lung am I going to give back to the patient? By and large, well, this is, and this is sort of my heuristic really, can I give the patient a lung back? In other words, can I remove enough thromboembolic disease to give them back perfusion to a lung? Now, it might be, you know, a bit here and a bit there and so on, but, the, but the, it all add up, adds up to about a lung.
1: Well, um, the clot burden, as you mentioned, is very important. Uh, need to make sure that uh, the, the hemodynamics are also factored in. Uh, if the uh, the pressure is out of proportion uh, to the clot burden, that means pointing toward you know small vessel disease, micro microvascular disease, as you mentioned. Uh, patient factor, as you mentioned, the comorbidities, and the surgeon and the center that you that you're going. So. If you look at your goals, you know, David, I mean, obviously you want to save a life, um, but you want to, uh, what are your goals? I mean, you're trying to improve symptoms. As you mentioned, you're trying to get their lungs back. I heard you say in the past that talking about the the dead space. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Um,
0: So um, patients can be symptomatic, for a couple of reasons with CTF. they can be symptomatic because uh, they've uh, got severe pulmonary hypertension and all the consequences of that with right heart failure and low cardiac output and and so on, all those symptoms we know But in CTF, there's a, another important cause, and that is dead space ventilation. So patients are ventilating areas of lung that are not being perfused, and that can make you very symptomatic. And it's the patients that wake up after a pulmonary arterectomy and suddenly they can tell straight away that, uh, that they can breathe. Their breathing is much better. Usually they're the patients that have got dead space ventilation uh,
1: that's been relieved. Obviously, you're going to improve hemodynamics. Um, sometimes you have the right ventricle, which is quite large, and even um, you know the walls are thicker and hypertrophic. I mean, is that a contraindication to surgery or or that's not necessarily makes you back out uh, unless you had a problem with liver failure?
0: Oh, no, no. I, there is no degree of right ventricular dysfunction that would make a pulmonary anorectomy contraindicated, certainly in, in our hands at the Alfred, um, um, be, in, in a... In somebody who you know that you're going to get a good hemodynamic result, that right ventricle is going to get better. And you can see it on the operating table. You can see the right ventricle shrink down um, uh, it, it, just as you, you can see that after a lung transplant for pulmonary arterial hypertension on the operating table. Uh, the, the heart can be very, very different at the end of the operation. So that's how quickly this reverse remodeling process can start. So no, there's no degree of right ventricular uh, dysfunction that would uh, dissuade me from my pulmonary end artery in a good surgical candidate.
1: Right. I can see how the right ventricle is going to be happy to pump against pressure that are 20 millimeters or less versus uh, 40 or 50 millimeters of, uh, of mercury. That's quite an in- afterload that you eliminate right right away
0: yes you don't you don't you don't get that sort of hemodynamic result straight away um you can immediately after the operation in the operating room the P- artery pressures may be very much lower because you've you've removed the impedance to ejection but that pa pressure continues to fall uh in and at 24 hours after the operation it's lower again than what is in the operating room Amazing. And the other question is, that's important to, to mention is that when do you make a decision about reinstituting pulmonary vasodilator drugs after a pulmonary endarterectomy? Um, and who needs it? Um, so you, sh- you should not make that decision um, for reinstituting pulmonary vasodilator drugs until about six months after the operation. So, all patients after pulmonary endarterectomy should have a uh, right heart catheterization about four to six months after the operation. Uh, And the trigger for restarting pulmonary vasodilator drugs because of the persisting microvascular disease is a mean PA, is a a PA pressure of uh, greater than 30.
1: Well, that's great, David, but you're going too fast for me. Right now, I'm still in the OR. Uh, you know, let's say you're a patient with CTEF. Um, what what happens in the OR? I mean, it's like is this like a minimally invasive? Is it stenotomy? Can you tell us a little more about the operation itself?
0: Right. So the operation, at least in uh, in most people's hands, is a is a stenotomy. Uh, there is a bit of interest in a minimally invasive approach, but uh, that's not something that I've embraced. So. Um, Catapulmary bypass, standard catapultinary bypass, but you have to cool the patient down uh, because one of the components, pathological components of this disease is collaterals. And the, and the collaterals can be often very, very pronounced. So if you're getting into the pulmonary arteries to remove all this disease, if you have any flow with the heart-lung machine, you are absolutely not going to see a thing. So the operation, the, the operation has to be done at circulatory arrest. So we cool the patient down to a nasopharyngeal temperature of 20 degrees centigrade, um, and we monitor uh, uh, the uh, cerebral perfusion uh, and, mind you, at 20 degrees centigrade, the brain's really not doing all that much. Um, and um, we have a neurologic protection strategy, uh, thiopentones given and so on. Some people put, you know, encase the head in ice, but that's probably just cooling the scalp, not the brain. Uh, and then we'll, we arrest the circulation, so then we can take all the blood out of the pulmonary arteries so we can get in there and tease out all this disease, uh, and then we reperfuse the patient uh at the end of twenty minutes for ten minutes, and then circulatory arrest again, so twenty minutes uh arrest ten minutes reperfusion, and that 's a very safe strategy from a
1: neurological protection uh, angle so um in twenty minutes you can do a whole long you 'll do the left long you yeah, yeah, start with yep yeah, yep. Yeah. And yeah, obviously no, this no. is not embolectomy like you do in no, a cubicle. No. This is really thrombectomy, which is really well, – well. what do you do exactly? You dissect well, the artery?
0: The, the, um, critical, the critical thing is to be in the right plane. And the right plane is not at the, what you might think, intimal level because there's really no intima. The intima is just all fragmented where you are is actually in the wall of the pulmonary artery, about a third of the way into the pulmonary artery. Now, you think how thin that the pulmonary artery is compared to the aorta. So so you've got to know that you're in the right plane. Now, there are clues that tell you that you're in the right plane, and then you have to follow this plane of dissection out as far as it'll go and the important thing is not what's happening in the large pulmonary arteries in terms of obstruction. It's what's out in the segmental and and subsegmental pulmonary arteries, where you have these fibrous tails. You've got to follow them all the way out and tease them, uh, tease them out. That's what's going to make it an effective operation hemodynamically.
1: So, so you're 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 pulling gently on this, you know, uh, fibrotic clot, you know, system while dissecting the wall, you know, I can see how easy it would be to um, get a perforation and pulmonary hemorrhage, you know, afterwards. How frequently does that happen?
0: Uh, Very infrequently. I'm not the one to be talking about uh, pulmonary, massive pulmonary hemorrhage because I've not ever seen it. But, you know, having said it, you know, it, one day it's going to happen. Um, but generally speaking, it's a it's a tear in the pulmonary artery branch because in your dissection, you probably got a little too deep, went through, and didn't recognize it. Um, and so once the patient's reperfused, um, it, there can be you know, a huge amount of blood come up the endotracheal tube.
1: So that's the problem. I mean, you work bloodless. And uh, you can only find out, you know, once you're done with the surgery on that long, uh, when you kind of rewarm the patient and probably sometimes even when you're done, that must take, a, I mean, you talk about 20 minutes on the right long and 20 minutes on the left long, but obviously with all this rewarming and how about if you're a large patient, it takes a lot longer to rewarm and it could be several oh, yes. hours in the OR. Yes, it could
0: absolutely. It could take up to three hours for rewarming. Uh, particularly in somebody who may weigh three, four hundred or more pounds, there can be a very long
1: rewarming period. I heard you operated on a patient once that uh, weighed four hundred fifty pounds and took yeah. several hours to rewarm. And uh, yeah. yes, was it was very um, challenging. Yeah,
0: fifty pounds is correct. I'm not. I can't recall the duration of rewarming, but it was a long time.
1: <laughs> well, the um, obviously the the um, this is a great surgery, and this is you can cure you know, somebody, uh, their problem, it can be some complication, obviously the mortality is not zero. Um, what kind of, um, what kind of problem can you expect, um, with, um, you know, sometimes with the lung developing some edema or some fluid developing in the lungs, um, or sometimes neurological issue, uh, bleeding issue, uh, what, what kind of yes. complications can you expect?
0: Yes. Um, well, there is the, there are the usual risks that we see um, after any form of cardiac surgery in high risk patients, particularly those coming to the operation with renal dysfunction and hepatic dysfunction. But the ones that are specifically germane to the operation of pulmonary endarterectomy, the complications uh, can be pulmonary edema, a reperfusion pulmonary edema. Now that's always talked about. It's a sort of a reperfusion injury that's sort of not all that different from what we see after lung transplantation sometimes, a sort of a reperfusion edema. Having said that, you know, it's actually very, very uncommon these days to see a substantial reperfusion pulmonary edema. Um, So most of the mortality is related to massive um, pulmonary artery hemorrhage because there's been a tear uh that hasn't been recognized the way there are lots of ways of dealing with that but and it all happens in the operating room but but uh it's a manager it, it's the way it's managed is to try and decide which lung it is and put a bronchus blocker in and put the patient on ecmo uh and uh and and, and odds are that that a that tear if it's not all that big is going to just clot off uh and And with a massive pulmonary hemorrhage, it would be pretty unusual these days uh, to result in a patient's death. Um, Persistent pulmonary hypertension, that is lots of microvascular disease. Perhaps the amount of microvascular disease was underestimated and there wasn't as much macrovascular disease as was predicted. Uh, And so the patient comes off bypass, uh, there's still severe pulmonary hypertension um maybe the card you know, maybe you might the PA pressure might be the same, but but you've increased the cardiac output because of the disease that you've removed, but it's still a problem because the right ventricle is still being able to ask to do something that it's really not capable of, of pumping against. So persistent pulmonary hypertension uh, can be a serious problem. serious enough to require VA ECMO. Uh, and then there are all the usual things about, you know, re- renal dysfunction. Afterwards, it's not uncommon to have um, a um, oxygen requirements uh, for some time after the operation because you've created a shunt uh, because you've got uncontrolled blood flow in an endarterectomized segment of pulmonary artery. So now you've got excessive. Uh, blood flow for the ventilation, uh, and so patients can be quite hypoxic. And I have seen that hypoxia severe enough to require VV ECMO for a period of time, uh, but then that that need for additional oxygen will eventually disappear.
1: So, um, and we're going to talk to Jason a little bit in a little bit about this persistent pulmonary hypertension, which can occur between 15 and 20 percent after this surgery. But all of this point to the importance of seeking a surgeon who's done a lot of these procedures and uh, seeking a center that is um, uh, that is a referral center for CTEF. I mean, obviously, the more procedures you do, there's, there's an inverse relationship with mortality, isn't it, David?
0: Yes, that's correct. But it's not only the operation itself, but it's the decision-making surrounding the operation too, which patients are suitable and which patients are not suitable for pulling out an And a program that has a very small volume is going to be understandably conservative. Uh, and there will be patients that don't get an operation uh, that really should.
1: Yeah, So I guess if you, if you know, were labeled inoperable, it would be worthwhile to get a second opinion, particularly in the center that does a lot of them. That's correct. Tell us uh, a little bit about the uh, the post op care, David. Um, someone has had you know um, a surgery for CTEF. Um, uh, you extubate these patients early. How long did they? How long did they stay in the hospital? Uh, what kind of treatment um, are they are they on after their operation? Yes. Um, so once
0: again, there's a spectrum of of pay, of the, of the course of the patient after primary antiretectomy, at one end of that, that spectrum, there are patients that have a dramatic hemodynamic response. Um, and uh, those patients, uh, we we wake them up. Now they take a little longer to wake up because they've had a pretty deep anaesthetic and they've had thiopentone as part of the neurologic protection strategy. So by the next day they're awake and we'll often get those extubated, uh, those patients extubated 24 hours after the operation. But, at the other end of that spectrum, where there's patients who have persistent pulmonary hypertension, uh, they've got right ventricular dysfunction, um, uh, those patients we take uh, much, uh, much slower. Uh, and so the, uh, I mean, there are patients that, uh, that really struggle. This is very uncommon these days, and really that is predicated on making the right decision. Uh, uh, there are patients that can struggle that might need VA ECMO. Uh, we we've had a patient um, uh, recently that we had to um, uh, we had to actually um, because of severe persistent pulmonary hypertension from severe microvascular disease that we underestimated. We had to get them on VA ECMO and um, and bridge them to uh, lung transplantation. Now that's the first one that we've ever had at the Alfred, but it is emblematic of the fact that there is a you know, a big spectrum. And at one end of that spectrum, these patients can be really critically ill. You have to think about other things such as lung transplantation and and reintroducing pulmonary vasodilator drugs early to try and bridge the right ventricle uh, through this period of of circulatory instability.
1: These patients, uh, if everything goes well, they stay in the hospital a week or two. And then what is the... um, uh, what is the time that it takes to become fully functional and go back to work and so forth? Yeah,
0: at the good end of the spectrum, uh, patients do doing convalescing very well. Um, so the, they're anticoagulated with warfarin. Uh, anybody with pulmonary endarterectomy needs to be on warfarin, lifelong warfarin. Uh, the the um, DOACs, uh, which might have been used for the pulmonary embolus, Uh, should not be used uh, after a pulmonary endarterectomy because those drugs have never been trialled in post-pulmonary endarterectomy patients. So it's lifelong warfarin uh, and with an INR target of two to three. Uh, Now, in in somebody with uh, perhaps a higher risk of of pulmonary emboli, particularly somebody with um, antiphospholipid syndrome and so on, your INR target would be higher, uh, but for everybody else, the target INR would be two to three. Um, So these patients really uh, at that end of the good end of the spectrum, um, they're like somebody who's had cardiac surgery for any other reason, coronary bypass surgery, valve surgery. So they go back to work um, based on the usual criteria um, for cardiac surgical patients.
1: What do you do in the patients that had um, severe pulmonary hypertension and they were all on on the drugs that Jason, you know, gives the iloprost, and, and do you actually discontinue these medications afterward or it depends on their uh, pulmonary artery uh, response?
0: Yeah, we discontinue them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and discontinue them. And unless, of course, they're at the really, the difficult end that patients are clearly having hemodynamic instability from persistent pulmonary hypertension. That's a, a whole different group. But for the majority of patients, those drugs are discontinued, not restarted. Right heart catheterization four to six months after the operation, to then make a decision about reinstituting pulmonary vasodilator drugs um, uh, based on persistent microvascular disease.
1: You mentioned sometimes patients can have neurological def- deficits. I mean, obviously, there's no circulation to the brain uh, for 20 minutes twice, you know, times two. I hear some patients um, uh, really get some good effects from that and, and come out of the surgery smarter.
0: Oh, i never heard yeah, that one before. That no, I've never heard that. But, but neurologic, they might be a little slower to wake up and a little bit confused, but a permanent neurologic deficit, that would be incredibly rare. 20 minutes of circulatory rest at 20 degrees uh, and, uh, you know, isoelectric EEG, uh, your brain doesn't do too much at that temperature. Um, it's, it's a very safe strategy.
1: Wonderful. Now let's talk about the patient that uh, was um, was labeled non operable. What kind of medical therapy? Uh, what kind of um, other strategy can we use in these patients? And and uh, we hear a lot, you know, particularly from Japan, about um, pulmonary balloon angioplasty. So tell us a little bit about that.
0: Balloon pulmonary angioplasty is a really interesting uh, new development. Um, Um, It would be incorrect to view balloon pulmonary angioplasty as competitive with pulmonary endarterectomy, but it's really complementary. Balloon pulmonary angioplasty is a very good strategy for patients that are inoperable for whatever reason. It might be because of comorbidity, lack of physical reserves. Um, uh, Usually it's not... uh, uh, um, uh, It's those patients... um, uh, Let me just backtrack a minute. Um... It's also useful for patients that are inoperable because they've got mostly microvascular disease uh, and little macrovascular disease. But some good targeted BPA though can really can really help patients hemodynamically and symptomatically. Now the prob- Now the other and the other place for BPA is patients who have uh, persistent uh, disease after pulmonary where we. Got an inadequate incomplete clearance um, and are still symptomatic. Um, so it's very useful. The, the problem is that it takes several sittings. You can't do the whole pulmonary vasculature in one sitting because you know there are risks associated with risks of, of uh, homeopthesis and damaging a vessel and perforation, so it's got to be done by in expert hands but it is complementary to pulmonary endarterectomy. The management of these patients should be predicated on the the idea that pulmonary endarterectomy is the best option. And balloon pulmonary angioplasty is a complementary therapy for inoperable patients and patients with persistent disease after pulmonary endarterectomy.
1: Yeah, certainly uh, when the pulmonary artery is completely occluded, it 's difficult to um, to treat even with balloon angioplasty, although some centers in uh, osaka you know japan are are doing them uh, most of the time it 's when you have a pulmonary artery stenosis or narrowing of the artery when you 're talking about sub segmental you know arteries. Uh, sometimes they could even uh, create a brewery over the lungs. I've never heard of that of all my years of uh, examining patients, uh, but I don't know if you had ever heard, you know, a brewery over the lungs of the patient caused by a narrowing of these pulmonary arteries, maybe. No, I've
0: never, I've never happened uh, that.
1: Apparently, up to 30%, you have to be looking for that. But you really as would. You, as you mentioned, uh, several sessions, I mean, obviously, you, you reopen an artery of the lungs bringing a lot more blood and could cause some uh, revascularization, um, hemorrhage. <clears throat> and um, you know, they, they have to come for three or four sessions. Contrary to surgery, which is done in the same setting, here you have to come back to the hospital for about three or four you know, <clears throat> different session on reopening all your arteries. Certainly, it's got to be, uh, I think yeah, Mustafa did a few at uh, UAB, but it's not very common. Um, but there's still medical therapy, um, adjacent and, and there is this medication Rio Ciguat, which has been approved particularly for patients with group four uh, pulmonary hypertension. Can you tell us more about some of the results with that? Yes. So, you know, medical therapy,
2: you know, like for a lot of things, um, um, is, uh, always an option for um, a lot of patients. So for CTEP specifically, um, when patients are, you know, technically inoperable, um, or operable, but with an unacceptable risk benefit profile, like Dr. McGiffin's talked about, um, or if people have kind of recidimatic pulmonary hypertension following um, a PT surgery, you know, medical therapy is a a very reasonable option. Um, Now, by and large, um, you know, we kind of treat, um, you know, these patients kind of like our kind of standard pulmonary hypertension patients, but with a, a few little differences Um, You know, you've suggested one, so Siglot or adempis is a medication that kind of has that uh, label for for patients with um, CTEP. It is a soluble um, guanylate cyclase stimulant, um, kind of in the same class as the um, nitric oxide pathway, similar kind of pathway that the PD-5 inhibitors work on. So this trial was the uh, CHEST-1 trial, so there was two trials, CHEST-1 and CHEST-2. So CHEST-1 was a randomized <clears throat> double-blind placebo-controlled trial um, that improved the PVR, pulmonary vascular resistance, and the six-minute walk distance um, after 16 weeks um, in the patients with CTEP. So CHEST-2, which was kind of a follow-up extension trial, um, showed persistent efficacy for um, up to a year. So that was um, you know kind of what really landed Rio Siglot kind of on the map um, in the pulmonary hypertension world specifically, for the WHO Group Four, which is the CTEP that we're talking about, although it's also used in um, you know WHO Group One as well. Um, so there are other uh, medications as well. You know, real Sigwat kind of gets that gold star, so to speak, um, you know, for that indication. Um, but kind of moving down the line with the other classes, of medicines that we've talked about previously in the other Pulmonary Hypertension podcast, also have some data as well. So the PD five inhibitors, you know, Cedanafil, Tedalafil. Um, there's been kind of pilot studies, um, you know, looking at those at reducing pulmonary vascular resistance. So those can be used, um, obviously not in addition with rare CIGWAT. They're kind of all in the same, similar family, but the endothelin receptor antagonists or ERAs, um, specifically uh, Massey-Tintan um, and Bosentan um, have all been shown in kind of small clinical trials in CTEP to be helpful. So for massey the MERIT-1 trial, um, which was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial improved PVR at 16 weeks. Um, so there is some data um, with those medications and those classes of medications in, in CTEP. And then lastly, your prostanoids um, that we've talked about before. So epoprostenol, iloprost, and triprostinil um, all have um, kind of data with uh, inoperable CTEP patients. Um, so they you know kind of have their own trials looking at Um, you know, reducing PBR um, and improving exercise capacity and specifically treprostinil in uncontrolled trial with severe inoperable patients, improved PBR after 20 months and actually had a higher five-year survival rate. Um, This was compared to historical controls. So all these medications that we use in your who group one patients, which we've talked about previously, all have a a role um, in treating uh, these CTEP patients as well when, you know, surgery um, is not an option or
1: when patients have residual pulmonary hypertension um, after the surgery. David, you've had some uh, good success with the medical therapy in, in some of your, of your patients that are inoperable?
0: Yes, um, but, you know, the, the substrate is still there uh for pro- for progression of the disease and progression of the subsystem dysfunction too so yes they can be improved but what we try and do is um if we can identify some bpa targets uh, then we will certainly start the these this uh, specific pulmonary vasodilators but we will do whatever we can to uh, uh use bpa
1: yeah. so uh it's- what what about the future? Um, is there any research that is being done in, in the uh, in CTEF um, surgical research as well as um, or other means of treating these patients, particularly if they're inoperable?
0: Well, I think there's at the moment the the directions are you know, the operation of pulling it is is sort of well worked out, but but the what we really the direction we're sort of going at the moment is. How far, can, how distally can we go? Um, uh, and How distal can the disease be and still be operable as opposed to it starts proximally and we can work our way out and remove the distal disease. If it's all out in the distal sub, sub, subsegmental branches, can we, are they still surgical targets? So that's, that's something that's being done in experienced centers. Um, and I think, one of the other directions, of course, is the sort of jockeying for position of endarterectomy, bpa, and and uh, medical therapy. At, at one time, they were sort of non-overlapping therapies, but now they're sort of becoming very complementary. Uh, and we just sort of got to find out what the what the relative role is of of these three different therapies. And of course, one of the other areas is it, there's got to be well. It's very likely there's genetic basis for the inadequate, incomplete fibrinolysis, and abnormal clot formation, uh, and it's trying to find those genes that might be responsible for that underpin uh, the development of CTEF.
1: Well, certainly, um, I guess it's 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 like the the heart team approach where the surgeon works, you know, with the interventional, you know, cardiologist or pulmonologist and, um, you know, have this approach where you would do surgery and uh, followed by balloon angioplasty to have maybe a more complete, some kind of hybrid, you know, approach to the to the CTEF patient uh, and then complemented by medical therapy. Totally, totally see that as working together, you know.
0: It's absolutely critical that, uh, that, this is a multidisciplinary approach. That's the best way of getting the best results uh, in CTEF uh, is that it's, that the management's decided in that, in that setting.
1: Any comments, Jason?
2: Yes. On the, on the medical side, um, you know, we've got some, you know, clinical trials, you know, one specific one um, is the ongoing RACE trial. So this is REAL SIGWAT versus um, balloon pulmonary angioplasty or BPA in your non-operable um CTAP patients. So this is addressing the question of um, comparative benefit of real SIGWAT versus BPA for inoperable CTAP. Um, so this will be interesting. So kind of again teasing away, you know, the BPA medical therapy, um, you know, kind of a paradigm, you know, which you know which is best for which patients. Um, so lots of interesting stuff. Um, as you might imagine, you know, these trials are usually slow going and they're small, um, you know, because the, the patient population is small. But as we kind of determine and figure out, you know, the surgical techniques, the, you know, percutaneous techniques, and then the medical techniques to take care of these
1: patients, um, you know, it's a, an exciting field to be in. Certainly, it's, I was surprised to see some of the long-term results with the balloon angioplasty with very minimal restenosis, you know, which is very something that we don't know much about in the, on the arterial, the, the circulatory arterial side, uh, where just balloon angioplasty leads to uh, restenosis in 40 to 50 percent in some cases, but not in the pulmonary tree. Well, I'd like to see, I mean, obviously, this is a curable disease uh, when you kind of uh, move to surgery. And I guess you can move, the earlier you can move to surgery, the better it is. And certainly, you should not really postpone. Uh, a surgical intervention uh, just to see whether the patient responds to medical therapy or not and how about the condition where you have the, the clots or the thrombus in the pulmonary arteries but your pressure is still normal
0: yes well that's the d- this is a relatively new diagnosis called CTED as uh, Jason mentioned cryothrombotic disease um, so they have resting and uh, normal pulmonary artery pressures but they will, on exercise, those pulmonary artery pressures will rise. And those people can have substantial thrombombolic disease, but they can still be very symptomatic and uh, probably because of, well, because of dead space ventilation. Um, and so in experienced hands, the risk of uh, pulmonary endarterectomy is extremely low. And those patients can benefit very substantially symptomatically from uh, pulmonary endarterectomy.
1: You you had some of these patients like this, Jason?
2: Yes, I have. And, um, you know, you really feel for these patients. Um, You know, post-PE syndrome and and CTED is, um, you know, actually kind of a a growing awareness, um, which is always, you know, kind of in these rare diseases, you know, these types of things always, you know, take time, you know, for people to come aware and to have a critical number of patients where you kind of notice, you know, these kind of patterns. And um, and then the field um, begins to kind of take notice as a field. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's actually a fascinating disease process, you know, um, you know, when you talk about circles, you know, kind of the big circles are all patients with a PE, which we, as you know, we've talked about before, just a few percent, you know, anywhere from a half percent to 3% get full-blown CTEF. That is just kind of the very kind of tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of, um, you know, overlap in between there, um, these, you know, patients with um, you know, symptoms of reduced functional status that you can't put your finger on. People are patients with persistent thrombi, and then patients with kind of measurable limitations in cardiopulmonary function um, um, that are still very symptomatic um, um, and largely kind of provoked by exercise. So, this has been one of the main things that exercise right heart casts or right heart catheter exercise um, has kind of risen towards the top four for kind of differentiating. So a lot of these patients are fine at rest or relatively fine at rest. Um, It's really when they exert themselves is when they have these issues. So as we know, exertion or exercise, we believe, you know, um, limitations there kind of forecast or foreshadow, you know, developing symptoms potentially at rest. So being able to identify um, whether it's, you know, heart failure or pulmonary hypertension or CTEP, Being able to identify these things ahead of time or during exercise allows us to maybe treat them earlier so they don't develop resting symptoms. Now, that's all kind of theory and hypothesis, um, but, you know, justifying uh, the reason for, you know, kind of um, using exercise um, to kind of provoke symptoms. Now, um, you know, it's still, you know, kind of a difficult thing. You know, as you might imagine, people don't agree necessarily on how to treat it, um, what to do about it. Um, But I do think that even having a diagnosis, being able to kind of tell a patient, you know, that, you know, and I say this all the time, you know, hey, you're not crazy, you know, because a lot of times people, you know, echoes normal or near, you know, everything's normal. And, you know, physicians kind of get frustrated, you know, because the patient still has significant symptoms. So, um, and the patients get frustrated. So be able to tell them that, yes, I believe you, you know, your pulmonary pressures go, you know, very high when you exert yourself and that likely causes your, you know, your symptoms. So, you kind of give them a little bit of reassurance that you kind of understand what's going on. Now, the treatment for that is a little bit more tricky, um, whether or not it's, you know, surgery or BPA or medications, you know, that is still that, um, you know, we don't know the answers to that. Um, we're just now realizing that post P syndrome and and CTEP is an actual entity and something that needs to be taken seriously next is going to be studying it further and determining treatment. Um, I will say that, you know, kind of small, you know, meetings, that sort of thing that I've attended and, you know, with large group discussions, there are people that do treat it. So if you can prove, you know, that someone has, um, you know, elevated PA pressures with a normal wedge when they exert themselves, um, then they have been treated. And usually the medicine that we kind of reach for is real SIGWAT. Um, it's kind of the first line um, and just start these medicines kind of very low and go very slow um, and, and see how patients do. Um, I've had a handful of patients, you know, in the exact, this situation, um, we've had, you know, two or three of them actually improve, you know, pretty dramatically with, um, um, pulmonary vasodilators. And we've had a couple that, you know, really have had no change in symptoms. Um, so, I mean, it's a very kind of inexact science. Um, I think a lot of times in medicine, you know, you just kind of try, um, and, and, uh, and provide patients options, you know, obviously limiting expectations, but if they get a benefit you know, from these medicines and that's great. And if they don't, then you stop the medicines and, you know, wait for more information to kind of trickle in, you know, from research. But uh, I find this Dr. McGibbon, you can, you know, chime in as well. I, I find this very fascinating, this post syndrome and CTAD, Um you know, how to diagnose it, you know, pathophysiology behind it, how to treat it. I think it's going to be a, a very interesting, um, you know, kind of field, so to speak, an offshoot of CTEP. Um,
1: in the you know in the in the next few years. So Jason, the, the, these patients have normal pulmonary pressure, but they, they do have clots in the, in their pulmonary arteries, so their VQ scan is not normal, right? I mean, this is not a negative VQ scan.
0: They have uh, mismatch perfusion, uh, mismatch perfusion defects. Right. Yeah. So this is sort of C. This is this is CT on the way to CTF.
1: Most right. likely. So, so when you get a report, for example, of a low probability for PTE, uh, that's not a normal th- – these patients could still have a, uh, a VQ scan with that kind of report, couldn't they?
0: Um, no, they'll have perfu- mismatch perfusion defects. That'd if you've fine. got a normal VQ scan, you right. don't have CTF or CTD. But if you've got perf- mismatched perfusion defects – then there's a very high probability you've got CTEF or CTEP.
2: Yeah, there is an interesting kind of patient subset, you know, patients that have historically, you know, previously had pulmonary embolism, pul- pulmonary thromboembolism, um, where their, you know, VQ scan actually can be normal, but, the, you know, they had this history and they have all the kind of same symptoms um, as people that have CTEP. This is very, yeah, this is a very interesting subset. So, I mean, you know, people believe that these patients, you know, kind of have abnormal thrombus remodeling, you know, maybe even within the pulmonary arteries, you know, kind of a dysfunctional inflammatory response, you know, blunted angiogenesis, smooth muscle, smooth muscle hypertrophy, you know, some sort of, you know, insult, you know, these clots, you know, got into the arteries, you know, resolved or not resolved or, and left some sort of lasting impression, so to speak, on the pulmonary arteries. Um, That isn't necessarily always detected by the BQ scan, nor is it actually, you know, even always seen on a pulmonary angiogram. So the the arteries themselves, you know, after the clot's been long gone, have, you know, developed dysfunction. Now, whether or not it's solely from the clot or maybe this patient had a predisposition to pulmonary hypertension, um, but there's something there um, that isn't at rest, um, that is, you know, provoked with exertion um, or with exercise. And, um, you know, these, you know, kind of patients fall under that umbrella, um, probably even more of a kind of gray area. Um, These are patients that, you know, people talk about, you know, in PERT meetings and pulmonary embolism meetings, as well as pH meetings. You know, this kind of very sad, um, you know, patient subset where, you know, there isn't really anything identifiable on imaging or anything, but clearly have symptoms and clearly have hemodynamic, abnormal hemodynamic responses to exercise. So what you do for these patients is um you know very tricky um but right. I you do you're into so that's, so that's a good question so no one really knows and I'll tell you that I do um because I wonder and it'd be interesting to hear um you know David's perspective you know the, all of these you know imaging modalities you know um even though nuclear medicine is very sensitive you know you got to imagine that at the very capillary or at the smallest level maybe these imaging techniques you know, definitely angiograms would miss some of this distal vessel stuff, kind of like akin to small vessel disease with a coronary angiogram, you know, the so-called syndrome X, you know, you have this kind of slow flow in the coronary arteries and you, know, you don't see any blockages, but you can just imagine at the, the very small capillary level, you know, there's, you know, diabetic end products in there or other things that cause this slow flow. And even though you can't see anything, you can believe that this patient would have chest pain or have some sort of you know, chest pain type syndrome. So I kind of liken it, of course, this is just me and Now I'm just kind of off on, on a tangent. So you kind of imagine maybe that that's going on the pulmonary arteries, right? So you have these kind of this insult, this very, very distal kind of, um, you know, still precapillary um, issues, you know, that cause, you know, low flow, maybe impaired gas exchange, especially if you're exercising, you know, when you're trying to you know get increased cardiac output through the pulmonary vasculature. Um, that causes limitations and causes these patients to be, um, uh, to be short of breath. Um, So that's kind of, once again, you know, I've said this before, why this field is kind of exciting because no one really knows and there's lots of hypotheses and, you know, I kind of have even my own kind of stealing it from kind of the cardiology world that we live in. Um, But I'd be happy to hear, you know, your, your thoughts as well. But, you know, some of these patients, I don't think you necessarily always see changes on the scan, but they've had a history of a PE and it just makes you wonder if maybe that's playing a role.
0: Yeah, I think you, you've, that's an important point, uh, Jason. And as we mentioned earlier, not everybody that has ongoing symptoms after pulmonary embolus has CTEF. It's, that's only a, a proportion of them, and that there are, are these patients that have ongoing symptoms. They don't have CTEF on a VQ scan, but they have some abnormalities that are still <clears> – <throat> that, that, uh, some abnormalities and, and and symptoms, and they don't fit into the CTEF, CTED um, group. But we don't know what all that group's all about. But they can be very symptomatic, and we don't know how to manage them. And they're not patients that I see, actually. Um, but I certainly know that it can be a real diagnostic and therapeutic uh, conundrum.
1: You operated on the c Yes, they can be very grateful patients because often
0: c patients that can be very symptomatic due to dead space ventilation.
1: Well, gentlemen, I think this probably will wrap up our our segment on the group four, CTEF, uh, patients with um, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, a curable disease by um, this um, incredible surgery uh, with thrombectomy and um, remodeling of of the pulmonary arteries, uh, something that is difficult to to find, and you have to sometimes... uh, uh, in the workup of your patient, uh, rely on a very simple test like the VQ scan to lead you in the right direction. Curable disease, that's not very often that we see that in medicine. David McGiffin, thank you very much. Jason Guichard, thank you again for your great contribution on this podcast. Thank you, You're
2: To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media
0: by searching MyHeart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.